just in case you don't know, my name is Kyle, and uh, this is Uplift, and, and it, just in case you didn't get lost, uh, we are in a series here on, in Uplift from Colossians chapter 1, and the series is called Christ We Proclaimed. And by the way, uh, this, uh, this message is also streamed on Sunday mornings for our online Bible class called The Conversation. So if you're watching us on Sunday morning, uh, glad that you're here. Feel free to log in and say hi to the chat. And we're also, uh, we're not really advertising this, but the message is also put on our podcast. So if you, uh, if you, uh, if you're, if you want to get it another way, you can uh, log into Anchor Point and subscribe and find it on all of our places and you can uh, get it there. The title of our series is taken from Colossians chapter 1, verse 28, and as is our custom, let's read this out loud tonight. Let me hear you. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. I think, I'm going to go out on a limb here, but I think that we think that we're all generally pretty smart people, Right? Think you're pretty smart? Should we do a little Jeopardy quiz to test that? I really don't think we're as smart as we think we are, though. I think we all think we're pretty as smart, but I don't think we are as smart as we think we are. There's, there's a phenomenon in the world of sociology and psychology. It's called the illusion of knowledge. I don't know if you've ever heard of this. It also has another name, a more uh, studious name, called the Illusion of Explanatory Depth. And it was named this in 2002. A couple of guys, I'm going to give you their names, Leonid Rosenblit and Frank Zeal of Yale University, hosted a study, and they asked people to rate how well they could explain just very simple phenomenon. One of the questions they asked was, can you explain how a toilet flushes? Very simple things, right? So all the participants in this study thought that they were pretty smart and that they could easily explain the, the various concepts. There were dozens of concepts in this study. So they all said, yeah, we can do this. Well, then the hosts of the study said, well, get after it. Let's hear you explain all of this. They were asked to do it, to explain these normal phenomenon, and every person in the study failed miserably. And they offered just one sentence or two when previously at the beginning of the study they were bragging if they could write paragraphs on these things. This is the illusion of knowledge, right? Other people have actually seen the same phenomenon. There was a recent study that found that most college graduates overestimate the grasp of their own college major once they leave college. I think they got it figured out, but they really don't. There's even been more research into this field. It's actually proven that our unlimited access to information from our phones leads to an overconfidence in being able to explain normal things. There was a particular study that asked people similar questions like how do tornadoes form or why are cloudy nights warmer and they, they split the, the, the participants up in two groups and one group had access to a cell phone, the other didn't. And they realized that the folks with the cell phone, with the internet, thought they knew way more than they, than they actually knew. And let's keep going, right? just to make, make you feel less smart than you really are. That's, what I, that's my goal tonight, by the way. There's another study uh, that has shown that our illusion of knowledge actually uh, leads us to overestimate how much we learn just by watching other people. 
And this actually has another name. It's called the illusion of skill acquisition. These are really cool names, by the way. This study was done in Northwestern University in Kansas. And the study asked participants to watch repeated videos of various skills, like throwing darts or doing a specific dance. And then they asked all the participants to, to rate how well they think they could perform those things that they just watched, that they could that they could actually pull off these abilities. All the participants say, yeah, we got this. We got this mastered. We can, we can handle this. Well, then they were asked to do it, and every single participant performed extremely poorly. So in other words, the moral of the story is that we're not as smart as we think we are, right? Or in other, other words, knowledge isn't, isn't easily required and acquired. And, you know, this is pretty critical. Knowing that you need to know more, right, this is its own momentous occasion because it's very humbling to say, I don't know enough. I need to know more. Admitting a, a lack of information and a lack of knowledge is, is really a sign of maturity and willingness, but there's quite a few times we don't go down that path. So all that to say, I've always been keenly interested in tonight's passage. Because in, this, in tonight's passage from Colossians 1, Paul and Timothy, the authors of Colossians, talk about knowledge. And I've always found that fascinating because they take these really spiritual, ethereal concepts and they make them really concrete right here in this passage. So let's read this. This is from Colossians chapter 1, and I'm going to read to you. It's from verses 9 through 14. Here we go. And so from the day we heard, they write, we've not ceased to pray for you asking that you may be filled with the knowledge, and there's that word, of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. In verse 10, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Verse 11, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father. It's a long sentence. Who's qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. If that seems like one long sentence, it's actually, it actually is. Starting in verse 5 of Colossians 1 all the way through verse 14. It's one long sentence. And our English translations do the best they can to break it up, but it feels that way. Let me give you a little background about this. Uh, so this section of Colossians chapter 1, it actually continues the Thanksgiving section of this letter. And we talked about this last week. You don't have to have been here to know that, but it's the second half of the Thanksgiving section of this letter. And the reason why it's kind of split in two, the second half of this, is that the authors of Colossians, um, the authors of this letter believe that the Colossians were in possession of the most powerful force in the world. Paul and Timothy, the guys who wrote this letter, believed that the gospel was its own multiplying force, and the authors of this letter did not want their readers to, to forget this. So they write here the prayer that they pray over the Colossians. They're asking God, please, Lord, don't let them forget this. Give them knowledge. That is the one focus of this extended, what amazing prayer. It's the one focus of this extended prayer. They wanted the Colossians to be filled with the 
knowledge of God. Now, that's not really getting a rise out of us tonight. So let me say this again. The knowledge of God. Like, is there anything bigger to know? Because that seems incredibly impossible to obtain, right? Incredibly, incredibly impossible, or at least pretty daunting. I mean, how can, how can we? We're finite people with extreme limitations have knowledge of the infinite, indescribable, uncontainable creator of all things. How can we be filled with the knowledge of the alpha and the omega and the beginning and the end and the author and the perfecter of our How can we be filled with that kind of knowledge? And how can we be filled with the knowledge of his will? That seems impossible. Let, I want to, let, let me show you how impossible this is. This is from Psalm chapter 33, verses 6 and 7. I want to show you how, how God is actually described. Verse 6 in Psalm 33, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. Verse 7, It's he who gathers the waters of the sea as a heap, and he puts the deeps into storehouses. Look at this. God breathes stars into existence. He exhales stars. He scrapes water together like, like piles of dust or little puddles, and then he picks them up in the palm of his hand, and he deposits, it, deposits this water into these vast pockets of earth that we call the oceans. It's this guy that Paul and Timothy think that we can have the knowledge of his will. It's really, really almost a laughable idea. In fact, Jesus actually spoke into the knowledge of God, and, and he does this in John chapter 17. By the way, if you have your real Bibles, you should, you should underline this verse in your Bible, because if people want to know what eternal life is, Jesus describes it. He explains it. He defines it. Here, listen to this. Jesus says this in John 17 verse 3. This is eternal life, that they know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you sent. Jesus defined eternal life as knowing God. Said another way, the knowledge of God is so vast that our forever will be filled with learning about God. Amazing. That blows my mind absolutely blows my mind. So it's, again, these guys, Paul and Timothy, Paul on one side of a prison door and Timothy on the other, they're praying that the Colossians be filled with the knowledge of God's will, that it pushes into every crevice and corner of their lives. That is, that these, the, the readers, the Colossians, be filled with the knowledge of God's ways in the world. Now listen, Paul's prayer here is not about specific instances. He's not saying that, he's not praying that the Colossians should know God's will in isolated moments, like whether they should eat an apple or an orange. And I'm not saying God's will is not in that, but that's not really the focus of what Paul's prayer is here. That's not his aim. Paul is reaching beyond the minutia of life to the great and cosmic plan of God and his will as achieved through the work of Jesus. So he's not saying here, he's not saying that we, that, that, that we should know everything about God because we're going to spend all eternity learning about God. But he is saying something incredibly special, that God's will 
The will of God is knowable. You can know it. God's not a secret God. He's not a hidden God. He's not an abstract, handmade idol in a temple. He's not a thought. He's not just an idea. He's not some mysterious, shadowy figure. His will can be known. It's no secret. So this begs the question, right? How do you know that you know? How do you know that you know? That's really the question. Well, here's how you know that you know. You know you know because you see the benefits of knowing God's will. That's how you know that you're filled with the knowledge of God's will. You see these benefits. And in this passage, it's all spelled out here. No secret. Paul and Timothy give four ways that you can be sure that you know the will of God. Four of them. Let me show you what they are. First, being filled with the knowledge of God's will gives us direction. Here's how Paul and Timothy describe it. This is from verses 9 and 10. And we're going to break this passage up in the next few moments. So right now we're going to read verses 9 and 10. So, and so I'm going to reread it to you. And so from the day we heard, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Look at verse 10. This is, this is key. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, being filled with the knowledge of God's will. Knowing God's will shows us the way to walk. Now, the implication of this is pretty astounding, and it assumes a couple of different things. Look at this. There is a way to walk. There is a way to walk that is worthy of the Lord, and there is a way to walk that is pleasing to the Lord. Now, to make sure we understand what this means, the opposite of this is also true, right? There is a way to walk that is not worthy of the Lord, and there is a way to walk that is not pleasing to the Lord. Let's break this down. Knowing the will of God allows us to live, to walk in a way that makes the sacrifice of Jesus worth it. In other words, we, we, don't, we don't live to glorify ourselves. We don't walk according to our emotions or our feelings or our desires. We realize the weight of our sin against the magnificence of Jesus. But this, though, it just all keeps leading to other questions. When, you, when you're pursuing knowledge, you, you ask a lot of questions. So this one leads to another question, right? And it's this. What is sin anyway? I mean, if all this is true, if there's a way to walk and not walk and a way to live and not live... Then what is, what is sinful? What does that mean to, to, to live in a way not worthy and not pleasing? Let me, let me show you a definition of sin. I'm going to have it on the screen here. Listen to this. This is about the best one I know to give you. Sin is a disregard for the creative acts of God in the Garden of Eden. And the reason why that's important is because God's original intention of creation is how he intended humanity to live. And monogamous, heterosexual relationships and in partnership with God through caring for our surroundings. Disregarding God's creative design is sin. That's what it means. But living and walking in ways that honor God's creative design, this is worthy of Jesus. This is pleasing to Jesus. 
This is direction. It's purpose. By the way, this is the only purpose that matters. And from this, everything else in life are just tributaries from this stream. Let's talk about direction and clarity for a minute. This is from the book of Hebrews, the New Testament letter of Hebrews. Let me show you what the writer says here about a lack of direction. So chapter 2, first three verses. These are great verses to underline too, by the way. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we've heard. Look at this. Lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? I mean, let me tell you what the writer says here, right? The writer says that aimlessness, lack of direction, lack of purpose, drifting away, that is worse than the written penalties of breaking the Old Testament law. That's what the writer's saying here. And those penalties were harsh, by the way. You know some of these. You, you get killed, you get put to death if you disobey your parents, right? So what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that a lack of purpose and a lack of direction in life is worse than those punishments. The beauty of knowing God's will being filled with the knowledge of God's will is that it provides us structure. We know exactly how we're supposed to live. We know exactly the way that we are supposed to walk in clarity. is such a blessing. And that's the first way you know that you know. Here's the second. The second way that you know you know if you're filled with the knowledge of God's will is that it, is that it gives us multiplication. Multiplication. I want you to look at this. This is from Colossians chapter 1. We're going to read from verses 9 and 10 again. I'm going to break it up a little bit so you'll see, uh, you'll, you'll see that. So here we are. Verse 9, asking, this is part of the prayer, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Verse 10, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. You know that you know when you see the fruit of your faith. You know, this is important. This is important because this is the public side of our faith in Jesus. It's not necessarily the faith we, we exhibit in worship services and in church services. This is the faith we exhibit to people who don't know Jesus. It's our lives lived in the marketplace, in the public sector, in our neighborhoods, and our offices. The knowledge of God's will guarantees that the good works done there in the name of Jesus will multiply. And here's why. Because knowing God's will means that we understand we don't do good works for us. That's what the knowledge of God's will brings. It brings with it a release of ambition which allows for multiplication. We bear fruit in this. Self-promotion melts from us. And that's how you know that you know God's will. Here's the third way. Being filled with the knowledge of God's will gives us protection. And oh, I've come to this verse so often in my life. Colossians chapter 1. Let's read this again. This is from verses 9 and 11. Here's the prayer. Asking 
that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, being strengthened with all power. I love verse 11. According to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. The knowledge of God's will does not provide an escape clause, but rather an endurance clause. Because you know and understand that Jesus has paid for you with a price, that you are bought with a price, that you belong to Jesus, because we know that no weapon fashioned against us will stand. None. Now listen, here's the truth of this. You're going to be bruised. You're going to be hurt. You're going to be cut. You're going to be bloodied. Your heart's going to be broken. Your teeth are going to get knocked out. You're going to lose your breath. But in the end, we will stand triumphant because we have a supernatural endurance for a race that's already won. You have protection and you know it. And that's how you know you know. And here's the fourth way. Being filled with the knowledge of God's will. I love this one too. I love all this. It fills us with celebration. Let's read the prayer again, asking, verse 9, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. The knowledge of God's will, being filled with the knowledge of God's will, gives us reasons, authentic reasons to celebrate, to give thanks. Now, this, this might seem a little obvious. We're actually here tonight in celebration of the Lord. It's, it's going to seem obvious to those who regularly attend communal worship services designed to honor Jesus and to celebrate the goodness of God. But listen, to a dying world, celebration is a concept that's been completely flattened to become the only response to every situation. You've seen it, and I've seen it. It's not given the esteem that it's held to in Scripture. Because look, you know this, worship is a, is a deeply intimate experience. It's full of gratitude and thanksgiving that God has deemed me and you worthy of the death of his son. Oh, how he loves us. That is celebration. In fact, without even knowing it, a dying to a dying world, celebration actually becomes an addiction. And there's actually a term for this. You've probably heard this. It's called emotional addiction. Here's what that means. Traumatic experiences in our lives actually cause our bodies to become addicted to the stress hormones of adrenaline and cortisol. So much so that normal doesn't cut it anymore. Emotional addicts seek dramatic experiences all for the emotional high. Emotional addicts celebrate all the time. They swing from one experience to another, not out of joy, but out of loss. Because these dramatic experiences help emotional addicts actually feel something. But a knowledge of God's will provides the antidote. Here's why. It heightens our awareness of Jesus, and it reduces the things that we actually think were worthy of our time. Giving thanks becomes a pure experience. 
And that's how you know that you know. But there's one critical right hook here at the end of this. And that's actually the situation that prompted this letter and this prayer. Now, over the past few weeks, I've hinted at it. It's not, I've, I've said it here and there. I've spoken it in some veiled sentences. But here's kind of what's going on. This is why this letter was written in the first place. This church, the church of the Colossians and in Laodicea and Hierapolis, this was a church being fed competing realities about the world. And this church needed knowledge. Solid information about God's will because they were being seduced. Later in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, Paul encourages them to resist being taken hostage by attractive philosophies. I've told you this. I love this letter, and I love this verse. Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. Let me read it to you. See to it, Paul wrote, that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. And listen, this is so crucial. Being filled with the knowledge of God's will, knowing God's will is our resistance to this kind of captivity. Look, we live in a world with no fewer competing claims about reality. You want to be filled with the knowledge of God's will, here's how you do it. You study. You study. You read the Bible. You read it. You give it time. You give it weight in your day. You learn. You seek ways to learn. You do. You serve. You worship. You spend your time in study groups. You engage in spiritual, theological conversations. Let me encourage you to be filled with the knowledge of God and his will tonight.